0: I want to start out by getting you to think back through through time, your own personal history. Have you ever been held guilty by association? by who you were with, by where you were? And though you had done nothing objectionable, you were still accused, you were still at least there was suspicion, Just because of surroundings? When I was in the ninth grade, I think it was, we lived in a small town in South Central Kentucky, and two small towns had had combined together to form an independent school district, and the high school was right in between the two towns. But the gym where we practiced basketball and played basketball was in the other town that, that my family didn't live in. So when school was out, we would ride the bus to the other town and wait for the coach to get there to open the gym. Well, it was a small town. There was hardly anything open or anywhere to wait except for the local pool hall, which was open. So the whole ninth grade basketball team and maybe some of the JV as well, together as a group went to wait in the cool of the pool hall while we were waiting for the coach to arrive. He arrived, we went in and practice, went home. Well, a day or two later, my dad came to me with a very serious look on his face and said, what's this about you being in the pool hall in Horse Cave? And he was just crestfallen, disappointed, well, the basketball team was waiting there for practice to start, but it was a pool hall. And you know, bad things happen in pool halls, regardless of what time of day it is or who's there. Anyway, that was, that was my first experience that I can recall of being judged by association. When you read the Gospels, that happened to Jesus all the time, Right? He ate with tax collectors and sinners. And that was a group you didn't want to hang around with. Look at Mark chapter 9. We'll read his uh, being at Matthew's house before we look at some things in particular. <clears throat> While Jesus, verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners but sinners. Another reason that Jesus gave for why he had come. I have come to call sinners. And interestingly, Matthew adds a, a sentence between those two, the sick are the ones who need a doctor and I've come to call sinners. Here's what Matthew adds in between those two sentences. It is not the healthy who need the doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. That quotation is from Hosea, one of the minor prophets, chapter 6. But he's telling the, Pharisee, the teachers of the law who belong to the Pharisees' party Go and learn what this means. One of the things that got Jesus into trouble was he kept telling the people who were the experts in the law, you don't know the law. You missed the point. You don't understand what God is saying. So let's try to think about the whole picture of Jesus' ministry in a larger context. Why did people pay attention to Jesus? Why did they follow Jesus? He spoke with authority. He spoke with authority. One of the things that attracted them was the way he taught. He taught as one who knew the will of God, who knew the scriptures, and could tell the people this is what scripture says. But even more than that, what would he do? Think about the Sermon on the Mount, which leads to the conclusion of the people that they were amazed because he taught with authority at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. What does he do in the Sermon on the Mount with commandments? You heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. What's that kind of statement? But I say to you that's authority. And what he was saying was it isn't enough just to avoid certain actions if your attitudes that lead up to those actions are not pulled in check. And so in the in the sentence that Matthew inserts between it's the sick who need the doctor and I've come to call sinners. When he says, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What's he teaching? What was it they didn't know? Forgiveness. Well, they didn't know forgiveness, which comes from God's mercy. They thought they were performing the law when they did the actions, But the prophets say over and over again, the sacrifices don't mean anything if you don't have God's attitude of mercy and forgiveness. And it was a vision that human beings had trouble with. They just couldn't get their mind wrapped around the perspective of Jesus. Why else... Did they follow Jesus besides the authority of his teaching? Miracles. Miracles. Right before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 4, he says people flocked to him from all over the region because he had been teaching and doing these miracles. So many people looked at his miracles and thought, this can't happen without God's help, God's presence. Remember Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night? What was it that attracted Nicodemus? He said, no one could do these things you are doing unless God was with him. So people recognize in the presence of Jesus the power of God and yet, you've got two negative reactions to Jesus' miracles. One, John talks about in chapter 12, people saw and they believed in him, but they wouldn't confess him. Why? They might, be thrown out of the synagogue. might be cast out of the synagogue. Peer pressure, acceptance in the, in the community, no matter Acceptance by God, but acceptance in the community. So that was one group. There's another group who followed Jesus and they wanted miracles, but according to John chapter 6, Jesus said their seeking was misplaced because, anybody remember what he said was wrong with their seeking? You just want the bread. You just want the shortcut to a meal. So you don't have to work for it. You don't have to take your own money, buy your, You just want a shortcut to, to life, to so solve life's problems. So there are good and bad reasons for being attracted to Jesus. You've got the power of His teachings, the power of His miracles. And so people began to say, who can work miracles like this? Well... Let's see. Moses talked about somebody who would come in the future who was a representative of God and whose words were so powerful you better believe them. Who was that? The prophet. Capital letter P. Maybe this is the prophet. Others said, when the Christ comes, can he do any more than this? Maybe he's the Christ. But the Pharisees, who never denied any of the miracles of Jesus, said, no, this isn't God. Who is it? Satan, Satan, the prince of demons, Beelzebub. Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. But, so, so, so what does that tell you? About the power of the sign of authoritative teaching or the power of miracles. Have you ever heard anybody say, if I could just see one miracle, I would believe? What does the experience of Jesus tell you about the convincing power of miracles? It isn't foolproof, is it? A miracle doesn't tell you the explanation or the source or the meaning. And in spite of the miracles, there were those who explained it away by other means. I, I had some of my students to read uh, an editorial the other day that, it, that quoted Stephen Hawking. You know Stephen Hawking, the, the British scientist who's an atheist. And Hawking was asked in an interview, what kind of evidence would convince you that God exists? He said, well, I used to think that if I heard a strong, booming voice from somewhere that that wasn't connected to anything physical, that would convince me. He said, but I don't think so now. He said... In fact, I can't imagine anything that would convince me that God exists. You see, belief systems can so override what is in front of your face that people can explain away anything if they try hard enough. It isn't always just the search for evidence or proof or the things that sometimes we think, oh, well, that would do it. If you're not willing, if your heart isn't open, then there's nothing that would be convincing. But think with me for a minute about the times that Jesus set his authority of understanding God's will in Scripture over against the leading teachers of his day. Do, do any phrases, any... Um, Statements from Jesus come to mind. We just read this one. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's one. There, there are, are at least two more that ought to be, that ought to be fairly fresh uh, for you. Remember when the Sadducees challenged Jesus in Jerusalem about resurrection? Said the the woman was married to seven different brothers. Now in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? What did Jesus say to them? You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Well, if there's ever any butting heads of authority, that's it. You don't understand the Scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. Or in John chapter 5, Jesus was having a running debate with the Pharisees and teachers of the law in the streets of Jerusalem. So there was a crowd standing around. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They testify about me. But what? You refuse to come to me. Jesus had this clear understanding of Scripture in the mind of God, which no one else did. Talk about minority voices. He was the only one saying these things. I used to think that one of the reasons for the opposition to Jesus was that he didn't go to rabbi school. There were leading rabbis in Jerusalem and around who would gather disciples around them, and they would sit and be instructed. But when the people said Jesus taught with authority and not like the Pharisees and teachers of the law, how did the Pharisees and teachers of the law teach by quoting other rabbis, people that came before them. Rabbi so-and-so said this, but then Rabbi so-and-so said that. And in the rabbi schools, the way you, you learned, I, I guess you learned, they would pair up students who would debate back and forth on some question of what the Torah means, but it was all repeating rabbis' discussions from ages ago in fact there was one uh clip i saw in a video where two two jewish rabbi students were debating each other and all of a sudden one of them just froze he couldn't remember what came next and his partner said what you should say is he gave me, oh so then they went right on with their with their debate Jesus didn't refer to earlier rabbis. He didn't go to rabbi school. And when he went to Nazareth, you remember this scene, it's in Luke 4 and uh, Mark 6. When he went to Nazareth, at first, according to Luke, they were proud of him because of his teaching. But then somebody said, wait a minute. Where does he get this that he's saying isn't he and how did they define him a carpenter's son or in one version a carpenter what's a carpenter got what business does he have speaking authoritatively about God and so they were rejecting the content of what he said because of as you said Luana where he came from who his people were what his what his station in life was was supposed to be. I think the reason that the teachers and the Pharisees rejected Jesus was not that he didn't go to rabbi school, but that he claimed this authoritative insight into the will and the mind of God, that he claimed a special relationship with God that neither they nor anybody else could lay claim to. And as you read through the gospels that question keeps coming up who is he how do you define him because he was deviant according to the main line thinking the established thinking the traditional views he didn't follow their line of thinking at all or practice so Jesus would spend time with the sick the poor women children, even Gentiles. And in this, in this text that we're looking at tonight, tax collectors and sinners. Let's take just a minute to define that category. Do you notice how often tax collectors and sinners go together as criticism with Jesus? Okay, you're thinking the IRS, I know, that. that The tax system in Palestine then was not like now. Julius Caesar had revised the the tax system on the Jews. Prior to Julius Caesar, Roman authorities had collected the taxes from the Jews. Uh, the, The Romans took control of Jerusalem in 63 B.C. Julius Caesar was active in the 40s B.C. And so Julius Caesar lowered the taxes that the Jews were charged and he allowed Jews to be in charge of collecting the the, uh, taxes on crops and, and other things. There were several different fees that the Romans would collect. But the Jews were allowed to collect the taxes. The way they did it was what one commentator calls tax farming. One person would send... Whatever the amount Rome said they were supposed to get, he would send that money to Rome. Now, what does that mean if he could take a chunk of money and send it to Rome? To start with, he was wealthy. Just by definition, he was wealthy. So, Matthew, Levi, and other tax collectors, this is a wealthy group of people. Uh, you get to Luke 19, Zacchaeus is called the chief tax collector. The chief tax collector would have been in charge of the whole region and then he would commission regular tax collectors and him to actually do the administration collect the taxes. So they would send this chunk of money to Rome then it was up to them to recoup that money by the taxes they charged, plus a little surcharge to line their pockets So in one sense, the tax collectors were the wealthy, the rich. And you get to somebody like Zacchaeus, he was right up there with Herod Antipas and and the really rich. So Jesus went to Matthew's house where there were tax collectors and sinners. That category means that these were people who had long ago stopped even trying to follow God's will. They weren't really living as Jews, even though they lived among Jews and their heritage was Jewish, they weren't practicing at all. Tax collectors were always men. What women were in the category of sinners? Primarily prostitutes. So tax collectors and prostitutes on the same level, same group of people, and Jesus is with them fairly regularly. And he was criticized for his his associations, the people that he spent time with. Uh, Alan Black, in his commentary, says that it was an offensive companionship. I like that phrase, Alan. An offensive companionship, just because he knew these people. He was offensive to the establishment. In a lot of ways, they were considered unclean by the Orthodox. And by association, that would make Jesus unclean as well. So the Pharisees say to the disciples, Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus' response is telling a doctor doesn't go to the well people. He goes to those who are sick, who need a doctor, people who need healing. That's just practical. That's the way things work. So, who among all the people is most in need of the presence of God in all the population? It's the tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. To repentance, Matthew adds. Isn't that what John preached? John the Baptist preached what? Repentance and baptism because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when Jesus came preaching, he preached exactly John's message. And later he sent out the disciples to preach his same message. Message: who needs to repent well the sinners do have you ever stopped to think about those two terms the righteous and sinners in chapter three of Mark Jesus called twelve of his disciples together designated them apostles and Mark says it's for three things that he commissioned them First, to be with him. Why did they need to be with him? If you remember Acts chapter 1, when they chose a replacement for Judas, the requirement was he was with us from the beginning until now. Why was that so important? Learn, yes, what? What? How to be Jesus attitude to learn that it isn't just doing the ritual, but it's having the attitude of God, the heart filled with compassion, anger toward the right things. There are three or four places in the Gospels where Jesus expresses anger, anger toward the right things, the teachings, the role of Scripture, the importance of the kingdom and the content of Jesus' teaching. They needed to be with Him that much. And still, if you recall, all the Gospels say at the time of the crucifixion, they still didn't get it. Even after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, they say to Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom now? They still didn't understand it until the Holy Spirit came and guided their teaching. Second thing they were commissioned to do was to preach. What were they going to preach? The kingdom of God. It's here. It's on the verge. Repent and prepare yourselves to participate in the kingdom. And the third thing, to cast out demons. This kingdom is at war with the spirits of evil. So that was the equipping of the disciples. What role are they for us? It's the apostles who conveyed to us the words and actions of Jesus. Secular historians, Roman, Jewish, testify to the time of Jesus' ministry, to his death under the Roman emperor Tiberius by crucifixion. Josephus, a Jewish historian, even attributes miracles to Jesus. Cause him the Christ. But you don't get any details from that. The only place you find the details is from the people who were with him. So uh, Peter and 2 Peter 1 and John and 1 John 1 talk about eyewitnesses. That which we have seen and touched with our hands and heard that we proclaim to you. The eyewitness testimony of those who were with him is vital to us and our knowledge of Jesus. Sinners. The righteous. Who's a sinner? Who did Jesus come for? All of us. You've got Old Testament scriptures, New Testament scriptures, especially... Just look at the third chapter of Romans. Paul strings together one Old Testament quotation after another, saying everybody's guilty. All are sinners. Nobody is righteous. In fact, Isaiah says, our righteousness compared with God's righteousness is like filthy rags. There aren't anything among human beings but Sinners. So Jesus spent time with tax collectors and sinners. You think there's a reason why he spent more time with them than with the righteous? Receptivity. Humility of heart. Feeling guilty. Knowing that something has to be done, but what? Where do you go? Who Who can... Undo this, especially if you think about people who have lived for years and years and years away from God, and they know it, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes. So there is this statement from Matthew 21, I think it is. Uh, Let's see. Matthew 21, yes. After the parable of the two sons when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he says this to his critics. I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. You suppose that got somebody's attention? It's completely the reverse of what you expect. But if you don't know you're a sinner or if you're not ready to admit it, then there's no way you're going to change your behavior. So, Jesus said, I've come to call the sinners. I've not come to call the righteous. Who's that? Who is righteous? Nobody. Nobody. But who thought? They were. In Jesus' day, it was the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the priestly hierarchy in Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't come to call them. They're left on their own. Yes, they're sinners everybody knew it they knew it and jesus called them by name they are sinners but they are the ones he came to call because they are the ones who will respond you don't know you need to change if you don't have a pinch psychologists call it a pinch that motivates you to do something if you don't have a pinch you're not going to move to make it more comfortable to do something about a sinful way of life, you've got to know it makes you guilty. So the last part of the handout I gave you uh, asks, what does it mean for us? I fear that Christians in my lifetime have been so conscious of the negative opinions, reputations that have developed over time in certain communities. We have been afraid of offending anybody. We don't want people to say, oh, you think you're the only ones that are going to heaven. We don't want people to say, oh, you're exclusive, stand apart. You don't let anybody in. Everybody's heard the stories about somebody who's not a member of the church on Sunday morning when they're passing the communion elements, lifting the tray over them so they can't participate. So we we try to avoid that by being just like everybody else. We want to fit in. We want to be accepted. And there's no call for being unnecessarily offensive, but Criticism is going to come anyway. Sometimes because we deserve it, but sometimes not. Jesus was criticized. He didn't deserve it. If we're followers of Jesus, we will be criticized. Jesus in his actions and in his teaching reminds us that the outsiders are often the ones who are most aware of their need of help. They are the ones who are most likely to be seeking because if everything is fine and hunky-dory, then you're not going to be motivated to change, to seek, to do something different. Don't you suspect that there were some among those tax collectors and prostitutes who thought they were beyond God's power to love them, to bring them back, to renew them. And Jesus by his actions as well as his teaching said no one is beyond God's love. There's no sin that can't be forgiven. He even said that on one occasion. Every sin will be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Spirit which seems to be calling what is good evil And evil good, it is closing the heart so fast against the love of God that it won't penetrate. But nobody is separated from God's love, and especially not the sinners who know they need God's forgiveness. We're too often persuaded by appearances we too often pander to opinion. Jesus didn't. And though Jesus was full of compassion and motivated by compassion and love for everyone, he represented God's truth, God's principles, always with every group in every situation. His teachings and actions were consistent. So Mark says here in chapter 2, there were many who followed Him. That's verse 15. Many who followed Him. I think they were convinced that Jesus offered something that they needed and that no one else was offering. The people that Jesus apparently spent the most time with were the people who didn't have status, didn't have high standing in the society. They were often looked down on and treated with scorn That was the people Jesus spent time with. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I will have them uh, in a week to write a reflection paper and and I will, it's amazing to me how open they are when they start writing something. Uh, They are very self-revealing. So, I'm, I'm interested to see what, what their response is to that. Who are we to approach with loving care and compassion and not glossing over their sin, but with the offer of forgiveness? We are all sinners, but that is not an excuse for not extending ourselves to other sinners. Sometimes you'll hear people say, Who am I to correct them? Because I've got my own troubles. And yes, Jesus did say, Take the speck, uh, the log out of your own eye so you can help your neighbor with the speck in his eye. Yes, that's true. But while we are doing the best we can, To follow Jesus, we are called to call sinners. Jesus is calling. We used to sing that song. Jesus is calling. The call of the disciples made all the difference in their lives. It changed fishermen to fishers of men. It changed a tax collector to an apostle. We are supposed to be able to think and to see beyond just what is immediately around us as we extend the kingdom of God. That's what it is the kingdom of God. Doing God's will on earth as it is done in heaven. All right. Look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you for braving the heat and the COVID to be here.